Now, the reason I read it this morning was because we're talking about the church and we're talking about the priority of the church and what the church is supposed to be about and uh, how the church is supposed to be a big deal. It's what Jesus loved. This is like me trying to give ice to Eskimos and explain it. Um, you're at church here today, so I'm trying to tell you that church is important and you're here. Duh. Um, but I know many of you re- can resonate and, and sense, you know what, I, I, I get something of what they're talking about. And yet I would imagine some of you can't. Um, you're thinking, I'm not so sure. Well, I'm glad you're here. I want to try to help you see in the Bible uh, the priority uh, that the church is supposed to be in the lives of believers and the priority that it is for Christ himself. Uh, and I imagine there are also some of you who are here this morning uh, who are, are maybe more than skeptical. Uh, you're not much of a church lover at all. Uh, I'll be the first one to agree with you that a lot of bad things have been done in the name of church and in the name of Christ. Um, But nevertheless, the Lord Jesus Christ um, gave himself for his bride, uh, the church. And it's a priority for him. uh, And I'll have you know also there there are such things as good churches and bad churches. Uh, And so just because there are bad ones shouldn't cause us to say, uh, I want nothing uh, to do with what Jesus has everything to do with. So basically, I'm going to try to encourage a lot of you and affirm you. I'm going to try to maybe um, give you some exhortation and help some of you along and uh, others of you maybe this is just first time but what we're trying to do this morning is to see the priority that the bible places on the church so that we might have our priorities straight so we started this last week we're going to continue today not last week um yeah in our pajamas last week in the snow we started this or in uh, with our snow blowers uh two weeks ago we started this series on the church we'll look at it again today and then finish next week Um, This is good for us, period, but also uh, there's something else involved. Next week, we'll talk about church membership and what it means to belong uh, and to to formally attach yourself to a church. And we'll also have opportunity next week to to welcome quite a number of new members uh, into the church. So uh, that's kind of where it's headed, okay? So last time we were together, we we looked at five declarations that help us to understand the biblical... um, notion of the church. And I'll just review them now. I won't look up the passages. Five declarations that help us to see the significance of the church to Jesus. Number one, the church is what Jesus loves. The church is what Jesus loves. We saw that he loved the church and he gave himself for the church as his bride. So if you want to be Christ-like and be on the same page with Christ, you'll want to make sure you have a love for the church. Number two, the second declaration, the church is what Jesus purposed in eternity past. He purposed the church in eternity past. We saw that in Ephesians 1. It's his plan. Number three, another declaration, the church is and will remain the bride of Christ. It is and will remain the bride of Christ, even in the future. Number four, the church belongs to Jesus by virtue of his blood. It belongs to Jesus by virtue of his blood. You see explicitly in Scripture that, that he gave his blood up for her. He shed his blood for her, talking about his bride, the church. And number five, the church is where Jesus is uniquely experienced. The church is where Jesus is uniquely experienced. We look at, looked at Hebrews chapter 2, um, where there's something extraordinary that happens when the believers gather for corporate worship, and Jesus even speaks in Psalm 2 about how he sings, it says, uh, to, to the brothers and sisters. Uh, there's some encouragement that happens that's quite honestly beyond what I comprehend or, 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 can, or can imagine. Number six. Number six. 
Now we're moving on to new ground. Another declaration to hopefully help you see the priority of the church would be the church is the living God's. The church is the living God's. It belongs to God, but not just any God. It belongs to the living God. And if you have a Bible, you can look up 1 Timothy chapter 3, and you'll see, we'll actually be in this text for a couple of different uh, declarations. The church is the living God's. 1 Timothy 3.15 If you've never had a Bible in your hand before and you've got one now, you can look at a table of contents and find a page number. It's not hard to find. It'll help you follow along if you're in 1 Timothy 3. As you're turning there, maybe a little bit of context would be uh, throughout the Bible, God is at times called the living God as a point of contrast. Just last night, In God's providence, I was reading to my youngest two uh, children in Daniel chapter 6, Daniel in the lion's den. I gave them the R-rated version that's actually in the Bible. Maybe it's PG-13, that uh, Darius not only throws the bad guys in the den, he throws their wives and children. And before they reach the bottom of the pit, the lions smash their bones in their jaws. Eyes were big at my house, and it was great fun. So nightmare, sorry, Molly, but um, she had to get up with the kids several times, but not really. Then we read Revelation 19, Jesus on a horse, and there's so much carnage on earth that the birds eat until they can't eat anymore. There's so many dead bodies. Now we're having bad dreams. Anyway, <laughs> that's for a different time, different sermon, <laughs> but it was awesome. <laughs> The living God, King Darius, couldn't reverse the decree to have Daniel cast into the lion's den. He was, he was unable. He couldn't do it. Okay, None of his gods could do it if he prayed to his many gods. It could not be done. The law had to stand. And then what happens... Daniel is spared, Darius is blown away because it's actually what he wanted to have happen and Darius declares this has been done by the living God by way of contrast to all of his gods, by way of contrast to him because he was being treated as a god because they were supposed to be praying to him. And he sees it as a radical, huge contrast. And we see this, quite honestly, throughout the Old Testament, then into the New Testament. It's one thing for you to cut down a tree and make a, a carved image and then name it some kind of God and bow down and worship it. It's all on your terms. It's all whatever you want to do. It's your religion. You made it up. And maybe it's somebody else's religion and they've imposed it on you. The huge, huge difference... The extraordinary difference is, we're not talking about that. We're talking about the living God. He's unlike all of the other gods, all of the fake gods, all of the self-gods. And so when the living God does something, it's to get our attention. It's to be unique. It's extraordinary, amazing. And so with that in mind, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, with that Old Testament uh, Thinking in our minds, the Apostle Paul says to Timothy, the younger pastor who's pastoring in Ephesus at a local church, if I delay, 1 Timothy 3.15, you may know how one ought to behave or conduct themselves in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. We'll get to the latter part in a second, but I want you to see 
Timothy, I'm going to help you understand how people are to act in church, how they're to act in church life, how church life is to function, what it's to look like. And by the way, the church is God's. That should get our attention. And so it's not anything goes, self-styled, however I want to do my religion. No, it's not that. It's God's church. But then for a greater emphasis to make sure we understand the point, it's not just God's church, Timothy. There are many gods. It's the church of the living God. It's got my attention. Okay, then. It's not a club. It's not just an organization. It's, just not, it's not just where a bunch of people get together and have some kind of like morals. And let's come over the creed and let's kind of say this is what we believe. No, Timothy, make sure this is what happens in the church, which we're not even emphasizing right now today. I just want you to see the point. The reason we'd want to make sure we, we act the right way in church and, and pastors are, are faithful at this and church members are too. We're talking about the church of the living God. When we, when we start to let that sink in our minds, it's, it, it's exceptional. It's extraordinary. It's different. It's not like anything else. And to the degree that I really believe that, you know, and I feel like a fence-sitting disciple. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. But to the degree we believe that and grasp that, we'll, we'll think differently. Our priorities will be different. Our conduct will be different. And I wanted to make sure you understood something of the weightiness of, of the significance, the cosmic, let's say the cosmic significance of the church. It belongs to God. Well, there are many gods. No, there's only one living God. Hmm. Okay, it's different. It's very different. We're not going to take the time to go there, um, but just seeing the living God in contrast to others, I wanted to go to 1 Kings chapter 18, Elijah on Mount Carmel, 450 prophets, prophets of Baal. They're all about a dead God who's not real. And they're mocked by Elijah the prophet. Well, you might say, well, that's the church that's universal. You're right. It's the church that's universal in First Timothy. Or excuse me, when we're talking about the church that belongs to the living God. But let me make sure you understand, Paul's writing to Timothy, who's at a local church in Ephesus, and it's the expression of the universal church, local assembly. It's both. It's not either. Let's move on to another one. Uh, another declaration that can highlight for us the biblical significance of the church, and that would be this. Number seven, the church is for promoting and protecting the gospel. It is for promoting and protecting the gospel. And we have it in our very passage where we are. Let's go ahead and look at it from that angle. Timothy, if I delay, 1 Timothy 3.15, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. And then he says, a pillar, some of your translations say, the pillar and buttress or foundation or support, the bottom part of the truth. The truth is, is practically universal in Paul's pastoral writings, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, the truth. He's using that as another way of saying the truth about Jesus, the gospel, the truth about Jesus and his life and his death and his resurrection, his substitutionary work to reconcile sinners, the truth. 
so important, Timothy, but I want to make sure you understand how conduct happens in the church. And what is the church? It's the church that's the living gods. And what's the church's function? What do we do? How do we act? What are we about? We're the pillar and support. How about this? Two strong things. Both are images of strength. Too strong, the pillar, okay, uh, that, that which uphold or, or, or is upright and the support, it says buttress in the ESV, that which is stabilizing below. I don't want to make too big of a difference. Certain commentators say we could talk about it positively promoting it, like the, the pillar side and the buttress would be what holds it in place. It's defending it, but for sure both are strong. Take away for now at least the church has to be about promoting and protecting the truth. The truth about Jesus. The gospel truth. That's where that happens. Church should be a safe place spiritually. Think about that. In so many ways, church isn't safe. I like what John MacArthur says when he says, you know what, you'd be better off watching football on a Sunday than going to many churches on a Sunday. Stay home. Church is dangerous. Things are said in the name of God that aren't true. The Bible calls that blasphemy. It's terrible. Church should be a safe place. Where can you go? Where can you go to make sure you hear the truth about Jesus? Where can I go to hear the truth about what it means to be forgiven? And make sure I don't get some kind of lies mixed in. Should be the church. Should be a local church, the church at Ephesus. Timothy, you better be serious as a, as a heart attack about church ministry, and you better make sure you can communicate that to the church members too, because it is the very place that's supposed to promote the gospel to the outside and protect it from those, sometimes even on the inside. That's important. It's such a big deal. And so as I'm preaching the sermon trying to, to motivate you, to encourage you, I, I want to say, you know, I, I want you to do your part, know what the gospel is, and I want to do my part, and I want to proclaim it, I want our whole church to proclaim it, and I want us to make sure that we're even committed sometimes of doing the, the, the strong things, pr- protecting it. We believe in salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We're committed to this. And if it's something else, that's not right. That's not even the Christian religion. That's a strong thing to say. Timothy's supposed to be strong about this. Omaha Bible Church should be strong about this. It's good news. But if it becomes something else, maybe because we're cowardly sometimes, it's not good news anymore. So, again, I know these things resonate with so many of you, but good reminder, it's, it's gospel. Maybe a couple, couple of cross-references. I'm not going to have you turn there, but 1 Timothy 6, verses 20 and 21. 2 Timothy 1, 13 and 14. Again, the faith. We're guarding the deposit. It's been entrusted to him and to that church. They're to guard the good deposit because it's entrusted to them. I want us as a church to have a sense that something's been entrusted to us. And it's good. But it may not stay good. I watched some armed guards the other day. I was actually watching to see if, if, if what they were up to. I, I actually wanted to see if the, if the, if the driver was going to be texting. You know, he's waiting for the other guy inside the store. 
And maybe it's not as big of a deal as it used to be. I don't know. I don't keep up on all these things. But as far as, you know, credit cards and transactions and probably don't have as much cash as they used to. But I watched the guy out of my rearview mirror and he didn't text. He was just on alert, guarding, watching, waiting for the other guy to come out. Not a perfect illustration, not a perfect analogy, but he was sober-minded, serious. Because there was a sacred deposit, if you will something special and unique, and it was his job, their jobs, to make sure it was watched over. We can laugh, we can joke, we can have a good time. I love to laugh. But it's not all laughs. Okay? We can be thankful for the men and women who've gone before us. Sometimes at the cost of their life, sometimes at the cost of their relationships. But God has always had His people And it's not always been easy to make sure that the gospel is what it really is. As Jude says, the once and for all delivered to the saints' faith. But it's what we need. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. It's exciting. It's exciting to know this. It's exciting. One more thing about this. Uh, It's exciting to know that while we we, want to do other things and we want to do this and we want to do this and we want to do that, we want to be a part of this and and we, we can do some other things, it's good to know at the end of the day, ultimately, priority number one is the truth about Jesus because Jesus is priority number one. Okay, let's move on to the next one. Uh, Another declaration that highlights the biblical significance of the church. Number eight, the church is to provide accountability. The church is to provide accountability. It's the accountability place, if you will, for Christians. um, If you want to talk about in the ultimate sense, uh, on earth at least. Matthew 18, if you want to go ahead and turn there, we'll see this. As you're turning to Matthew 18, let's all acknowledge that this is... uh, there isn't one thing that there isn't a lot of in American Christianity: um, self-styled, consumeristic, I want it my way Christianity. There's not a lot of accountability. It's like unheard of. Um, certainly not church accountability. Now we all understand there's other accountability. I'm accountable to my wife, and she's accountable to me, and family, and friends. Those are good things. But it's almost foreign to us, again, as 21st century consumeristic, self-styled evangelicals, that there's a formal accountability that I have to the church. But in Matthew 18, we actually see it. God provides it. God provides it through his church. Apparently, God doesn't think Pat Abendroth should be on his own. Matthew 18, verse 17. And we're, I know we're jumping into the context. We're not going to look at the whole thing. We're just looking at verse 17 for this morning. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Okay, so there's been a multiple step process. Someone's in sin. You go to them in private. They don't repent. You take witnesses. They don't repent. This is step three. But do notice, it doesn't say, tell it to his or her family. Because that's their accountability circle. No, there's not repentance. You you tell it to the church. 
so the church can pray, so the church can intervene, so the church can apply pressure. But do notice it's, it's accountability to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So there's step four, and that's, that's bad. Now he's, now he's not welcome to be part of the church because that's what would be true in a Jewish mindset when Jesus is speaking at this particular time. But I just want you to see and underscore for now, tell it to the church. So many times people can't do this because Joe Schmo Christian is not acting Christianly because this is assuming they're associated with the church. We'll say more about this next time. It, it, it assumes belonging. Um, I, I don't know how many times since I've been at Omaha Bible Church people have reached out to us for help and they're coming from another church somewhere or maybe just independent Christian living and there is no church. Or there's no church that would do this and it's like, how can you do accountability? You can't do it. I, I, I'm willing to say it's, it's the place on earth, not the only, but the em, em, emphatic in Scripture place where spiritual accountability happens on, on, the, on the serious level. I kind of like to be Joe Schmo independent Christian. Sorry if your name is Joe Schmo. Um, <laughs> it's where accountability happens. First, uh, First Corinthians chapter five, verse twelve. Um, he says, "Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge?" He's talking about accountability. Those inside the church—they're accountable, and they're the ones that you would go and confront. Not the unbelievers who are outside, but it's making the assumption that believers are inside. And again, I'll say more about it next time, but there, there's not a category for independent Christian. We do it, but there's not a category for it. So I don't want to be a non-category Christian. <laughs> Something unheard of in the Bible. Doesn't make sense. I don't want you to be either. I remember I've shared the story with some of you before. Um, not that long ago, since we've been in this building, um, someone visited on a Sunday, um, an elderly lady, and she had a private conversation with me just off to the side out there after people had gone and... and she was upset, obviously, and had tears in her eyes. And, and she said that she was glad to visit Omaha Bible Church because she heard we did church discipline. That we followed Matthew 18 when necessary. Which is pretty bizarre, you know? I'm waiting for the other shoe to drop. She was very sincere and very kind, and I did my best to be kind and sincere with her. She said, I think, I think I still might be with my family if I'd been a part of a church that took God's word seriously. I'm sad to say that I'm not. Now, that's not why we'd want to do it. We'd want to do it because that's what Jesus says. It's his church belongs to him. But I can't stress enough Again, because I'm trying to give you some pushback from what you get in your world of independence. 
and in my world of independence and saying, God didn't save us to be independent. He saved us as individuals, yes, but to be part of the body of Christ where we're with other people, touching other people's shoulders, if you will, where there's accountability for our good, for restoration. So we want to make sure we do that. And, and I want to say to you, 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 you need to be a Christian who's connected and not just connected to your, you know, Christian fraternal organization or something like that. Those are fine things. Okay, let's move on to another one. Number nine, another declaration highlighting the biblical significance of the church is that the church is for spiritual growth. The church is for spiritual growth. Here's a question for you. Does spiritual growth happen outside of the church? I hope it does. (laughs) I hope it happens in my life. I know it does. I hope it happens in your life. I hope you meditate on God's word and God uses that to sanctify you. I know that he does that sort of thing. I hope it happens in your life. And as you pray and as you suffer and as you experience joy and fellowship outside of the church, yes, and in your Christian life, God, God definitely works in our lives. But we have to remember that it's a, it's, it's, a, it's a false decision to say either or. That's all true. That's right. Go for it. I'm not saying not to. Absolutely. But just know that there's a category in the Bible for something more than just one-on-one. More than just individual in your quiet time devotions or whatever you'd like to call it. And it's church life. And spiritual growth happens in the context of the church too. I want to go on record as saying, if you don't have that, you're missing out on certain kinds of growth. You might be growing in certain ways, but you're missing out on other kinds. And we'll talk about gifts next time. We're not going to do that now. I just want to highlight one one way the church helps you to grow spiritually that you can't get on your own, okay, in a normalized kind of way. And this is going to sound self-serving, and I'll just admit I'm selfish. <laughs> this is going to self, sound self-serving, but I don't mean it in that way. And that is through preaching. Okay? If you don't have preaching in your life, I don't think you can grow spiritually the way God designed for you to grow spiritually. And once again, it sounds super self-serving. But I want to show you in 2 Timothy chapter 4 that it's beyond self-serving. If you don't have preaching in your life, you're not going to be the man or woman that God would want you to be. And preaching in the context of the church where people know you and there are struggles together and there's accountability together, there's knowledge of one another. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, let me just set it up by saying, remember, this is Paul writing to Timothy again, who's a pastor of a local church. Okay, we tend to read this as as isolated, you know, preaching circuit, podcasting, I mean, whatever. Just remember, Timothy is, is pastoring a church and Paul's telling him how to do it. Okay? So let's read it in that context. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. I charge you, this is Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, based upon chapter 1, so he has official authority. I charge you, Timothy, in the presence of God. This is like a courtroom scene. Okay, God is my witness. And of Christ Jesus. Okay, he's there too. 
who is to judge the living and the dead. So you're accountable to him, Timothy, and by his appearing and his kingdom. He's not a, a dead savior. He's an alive savior and he's coming again and you will answer, Timothy. His kingdom is coming. And then he gives the command in verse 2 to Timothy, who's pastoring a church. Preach the word. Proclaim the word. Be ready in season and out of season. And then he says, reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. Then he goes on to explain how there's times when people aren't going to like that. Okay, I'm going to skip that for for our sake this morning. I, I love to talk about it, but not for this morning for the sake of time. There is the preaching of the word of God, emphasis on gospel even there, but there's the preaching of the word of God and it's in the context of the local church. You need to hear preaching. You say, okay, that's, that's good for information, but how does that lead to my spiritual growth? I know it has to do with application and growth because of what he says in verse 2 when he says preach the word be ready in season out of season but notice those important words reprove rebuke exhort with complete patience and teaching so reproving and rebuking so you've got to they're correctives they're negatives you've got to tell people to stop believing things that aren't true about jesus You've got to tell people to stop living certain ways that are inconsistent with their profession saying they're a Christian. So you've got to correct and say, you guys got to stop living in sin. Uh, You've got to correct and say, you've got to stop listening to T.D. Jakes. He's a false teacher. He denies the Trinity. You've got to stop and, and he's doing that kind of stuff. You've got to believe certain things. You've got to reject other certain things. And then there's the positive, right? With great teaching, one translation says, exhort, that's positive. Oh, here's who Jesus really is. Here's who God really is. He's triune. God really truly saves only by his grace. So there's the exhorting with complete patience and instruction and teaching. And I'm belaboring those points because even though you read your Bible in your own personal time, and if you're like me, sometimes I feel conviction and correction. But you know what? It's all self Self, uh, what do you call it? (laughs) Self-directed. If I don't want to be rebuked, I don't need to be rebuked. If I don't want to be corrected, I can find my way around being corrected. There's something about life. There's something about relationship. There's something about knowing. He knows what the errors are that are trying to creep in at the church at Ephesus. He knows what people are entertaining and doing. And so he's got to get God's word out and he's got to reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. It's a live thing. I don't know about you. I mean, I listen to so many sermons. It's not even funny. I love podcasts. I, I, I love killing two birds with one stone. I love learning online. I say, go for it. But in its purest sense, it isn't this. Do all the other stuff, but make sure you know, you know, I've got to be attached to a local church where the pastor can reprove me and rebuke me and exhort me with great patience and teaching. It's a big deal. It's important. See, I told you I would sound self-serving. But it doesn't matter who the preacher is in the ultimate sense if they're preaching God's word. That's why he says preach the word. A recent recent statistic came out 
You tell me what you think. I posted it on Twitter, and so some of you already told me what you think, but a couple of weeks ago. Uh, 56% of Americans agree with this statement. My pastor's sermons are not authoritative over my life. So 56% say, yeah, that's true. My pastor's sermons are not authoritative in my life. Now, how do, how do you respond? I respond and say, if they're not preaching the word, they're not authoritative. They shouldn't be authoritative. Let me tell you seven ways through my experience that I've learned how you can do this. And let me show you some pictures when I was on vacation, and here's how I took care of this situation, and here's how... That shouldn't be authoritative in your life. Oh, not only that, I've experienced that if you do this, that, and the other thing, it will be good in your life. So let me give you some timeless truths. Let me give you some laws that I'm going to impose on your life. And if you follow these laws, it'll be good for you. Write these down. You know what? That shouldn't be authoritative in your life. Somebody should make me sit down. I'm preaching myself and my experiences. But in the good sense where preaching is heraldic, word for the day, try it at Jimmy John's. Where preaching is heraldic, there's a herald, and that's the imagery that's borrowed for the word preaching in the Bible. A herald doesn't have authority in and of themselves. They're riding on the horse into the town or into the township, into the, through the countryside. Thus says the king, I have an announcement. Gather, come. Here is the official decree from king so-and-so. May it be. And so when we have, this is Jesus raised from the dead on the third day. You must believe in Him. All those who believe in Him will have eternal life. Jesus said, come to me and you will be relieved of your burdens. You'll have life. Thank you. <laughs> you get the idea. And I can say with boldness as a, as a declaration, not because I'm authoritative, but you can make you... You can make sure that you know that I'm not a good public speaker, but I do it for a living. <laughs> you can know for certain that it's authoritative if we're talking about God's Word. Remember 3.16, all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And then he goes on in chapter 4, preach the Scripture. So please, please, please don't misunderstand. I have zero authority in your life. The leaders of this church have zero authority in your life. Apart from being able to say in context, this is what God has declared. This is who he is. And that's binding. I want that. I need that. Okay, let's do one more. Let's do one more. Number 10, the church is for gospel ordinances. The church is for gospel ordinances or gospel, we could, we could say gospel pictures, formal, explicit, important, significant, timeless. And we'll end here, but they would be baptism and the Lord's Supper. 
Sometimes we call them sacraments because they're sacred, they're special, okay? Sometimes we call them ordinances because Jesus ordained them. You can call them either one, but we're talking about baptism and the Lord's Supper, and they're both important. They've both been entrusted to the church, fascinatingly enough, as ways of showing who Jesus is and what he did. And so with baptism, what does it show? Well, it shows through this physical thing that we do, something spiritual that happens on the inside. But here we are, we baptize as we make disciples. And when people are baptized, they go into the water, symbolizing the grave according to Romans 6. And then they come out symbolizing new life. And Romans 6 talks about uh, being united to Jesus. So if you believe in Jesus, you've been united in his death and you've been united in his resurrection, new life. And so water baptism pictures that okay that would be the image it's a great image you're saying if you're going to be baptized i I, i'm connected to jesus i've trusted in him so i'm united to him and and i I want you to, to to see that in a picture if you will rather interestingly enough i think i've said that a lot in the sermon but uh in first corinthians 12 you have spiritual baptism there's no water, you know, it's an empty glass, uh, 1 Corinthians 12. But it talks about how we all, all believers, have been baptized into the body of Christ. So it's a spiritual baptism. We, we were all placed into the body of Christ. All believers are part of the body of Christ. And then we obviously would say that outward with water pictures the inward spiritual. So one is universal, Yes. But again, he's teaching the Corinthians at a local church even about what the inward spiritual is all about. Now, when the church first starts, you don't have have churches, if you will. You have apostles and you have prophets and they're just, people are saying, look, there's water, I should get baptized. Yes, you should. Because there's no, no category in the first century for an unbaptized Christian. It's just what you did. But what we do see is then local churches are established something that the church does because the church are where the disciples are formally gathered. So I won't say any more about that this morning, um, but I'll move on to the second one and that would be the Lord's Supper. We are celebrating communion today, if you prefer to call it that, uh, the Lord's Supper today and that's another ordinance. It's another sacrament that Jesus gave us to do until he comes back. So until he comes back, we take bread and we take wine. We know what they symbolize. They symbolize the gospel. They symbolize his giving of himself, his flesh, and shedding his blood, dying in our place. And we're to eat and drink again and again and again and again and again and again and again until he comes back, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11. Gospel picture. It's good for me to see, to be reminded Salvation isn't by works. It's by what he did. It's good for you to be reminded of that. It's good for me to be reminded because I'm feeling like a spiritual failure at times. Or maybe I'm feeling pretty good spiritually at times. Either way, salvation is of the Lord. The finished work of Jesus. If unbelievers are present and seeing, it's a proclamation to them. But Paul does say it's a proclamation. So it's corporate preaching when we eat together and drink together. Now here's where the 
rub comes for some. Shouldn't be a rub. Shouldn't surprise you. It's a local church thing. Oh, by the way, these help with spiritual growth too, right? The Lord's Supper helps my spiritual growth because it just keeps bringing me back to it. It's about Christ and not about me. So let's make sure we understand they're for spiritual growth too. They, they encourage us. They, they show us what the gospel is. It's a local church thing. Look with me, if you would, at 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And then we will eat together and drink together. And when we eat together and drink together, it's for you if you're a believer. If you're trusting in Christ and only in Christ as your Savior, as the one who takes your sins away, as the one who reconciles you to God, then you can eat and you can drink and you can do so, as Jesus said, in remembrance of Him. And, 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 and know that His work is done. And you say, this is good. This is simple. This is good and right and profound. But I do want you to see that these gospel pictures, this gospel picture in particular, is, a, is something that happens in the church. So if I don't have church connectivity or church connection, well, I, I, I'm missing out on this. Okay? Do notice in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 17, it says, But in the following instructions, I do not... This is 1 Corinthians eleven seventeen. I do not commend you because when you come together... Just have that locked in your mind. When you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, here we go again, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Verse 20, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper. I just wanted you to see there in that pattern that it's when you come together, when you come together, when you come together, oh, but we're not done. Go ahead and go to verse 33. In verse 33, so then, brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it is not to be for judgment. I just want you to at least see it for yourself. When you come together, 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 at least five times. Have a great vacation in the Ozarks or in Idaho or in Iowa. Just have family devotions. Have a great time. Enjoy God's great creation. You know what? And the creation is even better than you think because this is post-flood. This is a ruined creation. Wow! I mean, what I'm getting at is experience great devotion with God. In a unique time like that. But don't get out the grape juice and the bread. It's actually a church ordinance. When you come together as a church, there's something unique, there's something special. I don't mean to step on your toes. But there's this, we're going to come together and we're going to do this together at the same time. And this is going to be a corporate proclamation. This is what unites us. This is what we're serious about. This is what we're committed to. This is something, dare I say, extraordinary. Even though it's really ordinary. To the point where, now all of a sudden you see where certain Christian traditions, let's call them, when someone is put out of the fellowship, 
it's so devastating because they don't have the encouragement that comes from verbal interaction, but they also are cut off from the Lord's table. A unique time. Magical? No. Unique? Extraordinary? Seems to be so. Seems to be so. I'll end for this morning by saying I love the church. I grew up in a not a very good church. Didn't preach Christ. Got converted outside of the church. Started reading the Bible and being taught the Bible and it's 360. I love the church. How could I not? Jesus loves the church. I want you to love the church. Even with all of our faults, even with all of our weaknesses, even with all of the the frailty that is ours. That'll help us, if we see that, to preach Christ and not ourselves.